Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking out the best Houston sports podcast. Robert Long with Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. If you're new to the show, welcome aboard. We have been in business now for almost 10 years. It's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Super pumped about that. 45 years in journalism between the two of us. If you don't know us, so you're in good hands. Later in the show, we talk about the return of Michael Brantley. But Sean, all of a sudden, the Texans O-line in total shambles for week one. No Kenyon Green, no Juice Scruggs, probably no Titus Howard. Who's your best guess for the starters at center, left guard, and right tackle when we start up? A tough guess. I'm going to try to talk through it because there are some new names that have been added to the equation. And uh, the Texans are so thin that those new names in Josh Jones, Nick Brocker or Broker, however you say his name, and Alex Austin, they might factor in. I have no idea. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, The Texans brought back Michael Dieter onto the practice squad, and who knows how he factors in. He was getting the first team reps. But since Juice Scruggs was placed on IR Thursday as well, he's going to miss at least the first three games from what I understand in terms of the IR rules. I thought it was four. I heard three, so... He's definitely missing the first game. So you're talking about starting lineup. My best guess, man, we'll start with left guard. Uh, I think it's probably going to turn out to be one of the new additions in Josh Jones or Nick Brocker broker. And the reason why I don't have Dieter there is because there's, if you thought there was a question mark on Juice Scruggs stepping in, uh, being thrown into the fire after Scott Questenberry went down, then there's got to be two question marks for their sixth-round pick in Jarrett Patterson. It's just been a limited sample size. So I'm just operating under the notion that a sixth-round center who wasn't even getting number two reps when Scott Questenberry was getting the ones and was barely getting twos uh, when Juice Scruggs was the one, I'm operating under the notion that Michael Dieter might actually have to play center. And he's been a starting level center in the NFL before with the Miami Dolphins. I'm not saying this is going to happen. You're asking me my best guess. I'll go unnamed new guy at left guard, Michael Dieter at center. And if George Fant has a really good week of practice, um, he'd already gotten a lot of reps with the ones to this point. I would just presume that he would be the guy at right tackle. But again, Josh Jones, whom the Texans traded a fifth-round pick to Arizona to get a few days ago, he's got most experience at right tackle. And I spoke to him the other day, and I said, hey, what's your natural fit? What do you you really feel comfortable with? And he's like, I just feel comfortable balling, but I get what you're saying. He said, you know, right tackle. That's what he played in college. Uh, He's got NFL experience obviously at left tackle as well in guard position, but he'd said at the tackle position, that's what he would deem most natural. So maybe that is a big factor. Maybe you go Jones at right tackle, you go Dieter at center and unnamed new guy at left guard. That's scary. Yeah. I just don't see Dieter who played left guard through most of what we saw with him. You know, Jared Patterson by the end was playing center. Dieter was playing some left guard. I feel like those are their comfortable positions. So if you're going with current guys, I kind of like going with current guys. Here's the thing with Josh Jones. He was terrible at guard. He was good at tackle. If if you're going to go with Josh Jones, you're going to play him at tackle. Mm -hmm. It's between him and George Fant. If they feel like he's up to speed on everything, then he starts. If not, then they're going to go with George Fant. Because like you said, they they, they actually put capital out for Josh Jones to acquire him. And George Fant was just some guy that they, they randomly picked up. Now, as far as the two new guys, I, I just don't know if they're going to be up to speed. And and, and really, uh, Sean, don't you think it's it's a little bit of comfort level? You know, you just got not long to go before we start this season. And you know, if if you look at Broker, you know, he's a a rookie. You know, is a, a guy that just seventh round rookie. And you know, maybe Kendrick Green, but Kendrick Green had a chance to win guard where he was and 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 couldn't do it with the Steelers oh. at center. Uh, yeah. he was, he was, he was fine for a year at center, but he had a chance. So, you know, Jared, I just didn't think Jared Patterson looked bad when he, when he got I, the chance to play. I, you know, here's the thing. Um, I know we didn't look bad and you're probably right. Maybe it's Jared. The only thing, my hesitation really there is the lack of experience. And I just remember 
you know, with the way that D'Amico talked about Juice Scruggs, I don't think Scott Questenberry was really around long enough for anybody to really talk about him. It was like a week and a couple of days. But the way that people talked about Juice Scruggs commanding that line, thinking on the fly, making last-second line changes, just – playing the position and looking like he'd been a veteran in the offense and doing so that that was really the most impressive and then just being a road grader at run blocking doing serviceable job you know as far as I could tell at pass blocking I don't think he gave up any pressures during his time there and what little I saw of him in camp at that position running with the ones it looked pretty freaking good the thing is, is like, is Jarrett Patterson up to speed? Do you not want to put the most experienced guy there that has the offense down the best? Maybe that's Jarrett Patterson. Maybe knowledge, ability to handle the line similarly to Juice Scruggs. I know Patterson it was a sixth-round pick. I don't really care about where these guys were drafted. It just comes down to, like, is the guy going to ball or not? How much of a grasp of the offense and the line does he have? That's really what it comes down to. That line of thinking, yes, comfortability, since Patterson's assumed the position already, albeit, again, another one of those guys thrown into the fire. Josh Jones, his natural position. Maybe Michael Dieter at left guard. I think that's fair. I've totally forgotten about Kendrick Green. But maybe Green and Brocker and Alex Austin and even the other Dieter guy who they have on the practice squad now, along with Michael Dieter, Dieter uh, Iselin. Sprockets. Uh, it's Sprockets all over again, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's a second-year player out of Yale. Those guys, their bodies, maybe at this point, maybe they don't factor in. Maybe they come along swiftly. But you're just going to need to develop quality depth because right now they don't have it. They're just trying to piece together, like you said, our conversation, a starting offensive line. And outside of Laramie Tunsil and Shaq Mason, you don't really feel good about anybody. Get in the comments. Tell us what you think, who you think is going to start. You mentioned uh, Kendrick Green, and, you know, this is somebody that was a six-round pick. Uh, they gave up a six-round pick, I should say, for Kendrick Green, but he was much better than a six-round pick. He was a third-round pick. He's the evil brother of Kenyon Green, I guess, right? He's the evil brother. Sean, feel, yeah, feel free to add anything on this, but, Sean, but Kendrick, he played 975 snaps in 2021. He allowed three sacks, posted a 52.4 pro football focus grade. Not great, but much better than Scott Quesenberry did last year. Also, the Steelers last year tried to move Kendrick uh, from center to guard, but he lost a camp battle for the spot, and then he was inactive every game. In college, he was a second-team All-American. Yeah, healthy and active, but he was a second-team All-American at Illinois. Anything I missed? Well, in recent weeks, they tried him out at fullback in Pittsburgh. Uh, so to me, that just went and showed you the lack of faith that they had in this guy to even consider him having a future on the offensive line. The video that I saw of him at fullback actually looked pretty darn good. And so it even had me thinking for a hot second, like, you know, what are the Texans doing here? Like, are they that light at fullback position? Do they not like Keen? Like, do they need a bigger body? Like, so they they trade a sixth round pick for in 2025 for a project at fullback. They already got one in Troy Hairston with a herniated disc on IR. It's like, what are they doing? You know, I've heard some really good points about Kendrick Green, and maybe it's the case. If you look at the way that the Steelers offense, how they're employing their linemen, it's more they're, smash they're, they're more of like a straight up blocking where the Texans yeah, are zone exactly. scheme. This this might be a zone they, they're talking about this guy might just be a zone scheme guy. That, that's what I was getting to. You know, they're more of a smash mouth scheme up in Pittsburgh. Um Maybe he's a better fit, you know, here in Houston at the zone scheme. When I talked to Chris Strouser a few weeks ago, big, strong, powerful, athletic um, Kendrick Green embodies all of that on the surface. Um, and it's shown through on the film, obviously, with his ability to move around and play multiple positions. It's going to be a project. And look, ultimately, you're trying to develop quality depth. And maybe he's a guy here. Nobody needs him to be a guy long term. You just need to be able to come in. And like D'Amico Ryan said uh, on Wednesday, just get the job done. I translated that to as thin as they are on the offensive line right now, you guys just got to figure it out. And look, I think it lends itself to a much larger conversation in terms of the culpability uh, and accountability D'Amico and Nick Casario, both included, you have to put them both in there. The way that they mishandled, I think, this offensive line in terms of obtaining quality depth at an early stage. Okay, they also picked up Nick Broker. We mentioned him off the waiver wire from the Bills. Seventh round pick just a couple of months ago. You go, well, seventh round pick, 
I, I don't know, but the Texans were one of four teams, four of them that claimed him off the waiver wires. He's one of the most coveted guy off the waiver wires. And besides guard broker played left tackle at Ole Miss. He's got some versatility to yep. him. Lance Zerline projected him, Sean, as a fifth round pick, but also said he doesn't see him as his own blocking guard. He's somebody that, though, is not super powerful. So I, I, I feel like his his benefit, if you look at him from an offensive line perspective, is more mobility than, you know, as a, as a power guy because he's small for a, for a guard. Yeah, and again, like you mentioned, uh, a, a rookie, right? I mentioned the word project already as well. Maybe they're looking at him as like a possible fit now. You see the body change, the strength, you know, developing NFL strength, you know, with these guys that you take a chance on later in drafts around year two, right? That's what we were anticipating with Kenyon Green, and understandably so to a degree. The knee arthroscopic surgery this offseason, surgery coming into his rookie year, and now he's dealing with the shoulder injury that we find out he'd had since at least. May obviously held him back quite a bit. You could see it. A lot of us, you know, that are used to seeing him every day didn't see the body change, didn't see the strength change. I saw a guy that looked out of shape that just wasn't football ready. The way that Nick Casario described John Mechie to me yesterday, it looks like a guy that hadn't played football in 18 months. Kendrick Green didn't look much better, to be quite honest with you. But now we know a little bit more of a reason why. Maybe Kendrick Green is a project just as though they view Nick Brocker. Maybe not a system fit in terms of a guy you're evaluating coming out of college, but with a little NFL experience, you know, he's had an entire offseason program, albeit with a different organization. Look, just like we talk about offensive coordinators, head coaches, they look at a quarterback and think, you know what, I can do something with that guy. I can I can help him. I can fix him. Maybe Chris Strouser, you know, is a guy standing on the table saying, hey, we need help on the offensive line. I can do something with this cat. You never know. It's just TBD, and that's the scary part, once again, about this offensive line. Yeah, you talk about Kenyon Green and the injury, and when he got hurt in the Saints game, and I just have to make a, a quick, uh, you know, sort of a side note on this. I heard a lot of Houston radio personalities, including a couple of your station, Sean, at Sports Radio 610, making fun of Kenyon and accusing him of faking the injury. I, I was not it. thrilled with that. I was not thrilled with that. There was this, you know, this idea – I, who said? I, it? I want to know who said I, that. I, I could have sworn I heard Seth Payne and and, and uh, Pendergast. I heard Payne and Pendergast talking about that and kind of saying, you know, it looked like he was trying to do something there because he got beat on the play and you know he got taken to the medical tent. I mean, they don't do that well, if you're if they feel like this. They thought this was very real, and I just think it's it's out of bounds to question an NFL player without some proof. I, I mean, I, I could see that kind of tongue-in-cheek early on, like maybe on a post-game show where you just don't know anything at that point or maybe even the next morning of – but, hell, it was a Saturday game, was it? No, it was a Sunday night game. So no, yeah, no the it was the next morning. It was the next yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe slightly out of bounds still because – you know me. I'm just not a fan of – we've had this conversation about the same guy. I'm not a fan of criticizing somebody for not loving the game, not trying very hard, certainly faking an injury on a play that he got and beat badly on. Look, if Kenyon Green wanted to fake injury, if his feelings got hurt, he had plenty of opportunity to do that last year for a month straight when he was facing murderer's row of interior defensive linemen, and he got his ass handed to him. And he didn't. He buckled it up. And I even... I sure I'm, I guarantee I wasn't the only one that lauded him for going out there busting his ass and probably playing hurt through that. And it gets to a certain point to where it's really no different than Derek Stingley, than Damian Pierce, one of your rookies, Kenyon Green. Look, it, it would have been totally understandable if you pull that guy out. You could have pulled him out probably two weeks before you did. He only played 15 games last year. And it would have been understandable that, you know what, you save this guy and you make sure he's right healthy. He's right health-wise. And if anybody should be criticized but, as far as uh, in, any of this, it's it sounds like the Texans kind of knew a little bit about what was going on with his shoulder. 100%. 100%. And that was, to me, that was the story of the day yesterday. Nick Casario offering up, which he didn't have to. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, the fact that they'd said they'd known about this back in May. And that it was a question of when and not if. 
that Kenyon was going to aggravate this shoulder. And I think that's what they meant. I don't think you're forecasting like this guy's going to end up on season-ending IR, but it was a question when or not if this guy's shoulder was going to flare up and be a problem. They knew back in May. That's what Casario said. The other thing is addressing it. And look, I, I, I get they've tried Michael Dieter at the position whom they'd signed back in March. I get that they brought in Keaton Sutherland, but he himself got hurt and then was brought back and then cut and now brought back, I think, on the practice squad again. Like, he's just a body. I haven't seen anything from him, and they moved him all over the place. So Beach and Sutherland and Dieter, any one of those guys, to me, can't hold Michael Dieter's jock, Kenyon included, in terms of overall performance in camp, in games. The well, guys well just remember, like, we were asking, why is Juice Scruggs playing guard instead of center? Maybe We're- that was why, but you have to have depth at every position. One thing that we felt like, I think you were in agreement with me on, is they had a lot of versatility about a week ago with the center guard exchange, right? Like they had a lot of swing guys, Jimmy Morrissey, who at the time was you know still on the team before being cut and brought back. They had a lot of guys that could play multiple positions, guard and center. The one thing that they needed is tackle. They addressed that with Josh Jones. But if you knew back in May that one of your projected starting linemen, like guaranteed dues, he's a 15th overall pick. He's going to start this season if he's healthy. If you knew that there was a prospect that he wasn't going to be healthy, you needed to go address that then. Make sure you got a quality guy. uh, Yeah, I don't know about that because if it's May, it's after the draft, it's after free agency, you know if you're the Texans in a couple of months, there's going to be some guys that are available that wouldn't have been available in May. And so you kind of have to be patient with that whole process. I, I, that doesn't bother me. It bothers me that they were trying to run Kenyon Green out there, maybe when he shouldn't have been run out there, period. And, well, and, and it's dangerous for a guy that you've invested a first-round pick in. You know, and that's something else I mentioned the other day, too. Why, why does Kenyon look this bad? To me, it felt like a guy that felt the pressure. He needed to do whatever was in his power to get on a football field. If anybody should have commented on Kenyon Green, the comment should have been, hey, this guy is tough because you know what? He had an issue and he was getting roasted and he didn't say a word about it. A well, the, word. D'Amico and Casario uh, you know, both mentioned how they appreciated Kenyon Green for working hard and getting on the field, but... I think to a certain degree, it's you've got to be careful. And maybe they themselves felt the pressure as well because they knew the lack of depth that was behind them. So it's like, hey, we're going to let this guy give it a go. If it works, it works. If it don't, it don't. It's built an excuse. At least we could point to the fact that, you know, we brought in a center guard swing guy in Michael Dieter a couple of months before, and it looks like we addressed it there. But it, it just looked really bad 24 hours ago when – the guy that you brought in for quality depth, you cut. Looks a little bit better. Maybe it's more excusable now that you bring Dieter back on the practice squad. He probably slots in at that left guard position, and things aren't looking that bad going forward. It's just the process and how you got there, I think, was initially a really, really bad look on the Texans. Ultimately, I got to believe in Kenyon that he just was thinking, I got to do whatever I can to get on this field. The knee held me back getting my body where I wanted it to get to, but I've got something to prove, you know, to my teammates, to the organization, and I got to show them that I want this bad, and it just didn't work. Hopefully, you know, this reset of sorts, he gets the shoulder healthy, the knee gets to be 100%, and he's ready to just hit the ground running next year. That's the best you can hope for. The Texans, besides Nick, is it Broker or Brocker? Am I pronouncing it wrong? Is it? I don't know. Brocker? Pick one. I did the same thing. Um, he... He he was joined who by a guy who was also grabbed off the waiver wire from the Bills, cornerback Alan Alex Austin and Alex Austin, who I, I think you can only say it Alex Austin. It could be Alex A. Houston, but I'm going to say Austin. Uh, Alex Austin, another seventh round pick that they had this year. Lance Zerline had him as a potential fourth or fifth round pick on NFL.com, and it's kind of interesting, Sean, that Casario waves Desmond King and picks up a seventh-round pick. What do you think about that? I mean, Desmond King was one of the surprise cuts, Um, obviously. I mean, look, he's literally one of the major reasons why you felt as comfortable with the secondary as you did in the offseason. I mean, sure. Biggest surprise, do you think, of all the cuts? Biggest surprise? uh, um, Outside of – 
initially Dieter. It was King. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I guess you have to, unless I'm blanking on one. I don't have the list in front of me. You know, so many names and moves over the course of just the last 24 hours, it all kind of runs together. But yeah, I mean, I guess so. Um, and it would make sense, right? Outside of Jalen Petrie, Jimmy Ward, Derek Stingley, Steven Nelson. <laughs> hey, he's your best nickel corner, right? I mean, Tommy here, Thomas missed basically all the training camp last year. I think he had to wait until week four, week five to become activated off of IR. And when he was out there, he was a good player. But guess what? Desmond King would have been, you know, a better than average corner on a lot of football teams. In fact, his new team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, according to PFF, who I think he graded out about a 72, 73 last year, he would have been the second best corner on their team last season. He was your nickel corner for the first nine weeks last year and weeks 10 through 18 they moved him around all over the place. Sometimes he played inside. He usually played outside at that point in time. When Derek Stingley went down, they needed depth there, and he was a good guy, and he'd played the position before. He fit right in, made some plays. Certainly a hell of a lot better tackler in the secondary than most, what they were trotting out there at that point in time. But it's one of those things that sometimes, in Desmond King's case, it doesn't make sense on a football level, but... Just from what I heard, there were other things that preceded his reputation with the Texans that uh, they hadn't forgotten about, and it wasn't a culture fit going forward, and they made the tough decision to let him go and find depth elsewhere. So sometimes those are things and you know that make people scratch their heads, but ultimately when you hear as much – uh, about you know culture and how important it is to establish D'Amico's you know in his first year that those are going to be some of the hard moves you have to make. Yeah, we make a big deal that this is a Casario decision, but this is an organization decision. This is D'Amico's involved, but I, I will say that Casario had to cut five of his draft picks this year, five guys that he's picked over the years: Thomas Booker, fifth yep. round, two thousand and twenty-two; Garrett Wallow, fifth round, two thousand and twenty-one; Austin Dakulis, sixth round, two thousand and twenty-two; Roy Lopez. Another surprise cut for some people, sixth round, 2021. And Brandon Hill, seventh round, 2023. What do you think about that? Now, you mentioned the other guy that I was trying to think of. I knew there was one that made me raise my eyebrows. It was Roy Lopez. I had him making the team. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, the body transformation, the guy flashing, um, you know, routinely in games. That was a difficult one. That was that was really, really difficult. I wouldn't have made the same move, clearly. But that is another L for Casario. If you're keeping score at home, they weren't exactly swimming in draft capital when he took this job in 2021. And you cut five guys, granted, later round picks, but nevertheless, five guys whom you spent draft capital on that are no longer on this team that hadn't been on it even through three seasons. That's that's a tough look, especially when you're keeping score elsewhere about, you know, how he handled the Brandon Cook situation last year. You know, some of the weird trades that he's made, moving up for guys or moving back for guys. Kane Green is still there. He's got he's he's attached to that one. I, and, I don't think he likes later on picks because if you you pay attention, John, he likes to trade later on picks. He sometimes trades them to move up, which is, you know, that's a good right. way to use them. And it's, you know, it's perfectly fine. And a lot of later round picks, they're not going to hit anyway. We know this. And the Texans have a long history of not hitting late round picks. But the other thing that you notice, what he does like to do a lot with those later round picks is he kind of shuffles them around. And then now he's using them to trade for other players. And maybe that's better for him. Maybe it's better to trade for a Josh Jones with that, with that fifth round pick than actually, you know, take somebody that's, Probably not going to work anyway. At least you know Josh oh, Jones could play a little football. That could be one of the better trades. Uh, you know, let's just see how that turns out. He's going to have to re-sign them, though, re-sign them after this, you know, because I think does, doesn't his contract end after this season? Or? Yeah, big deal. You know, final year of a rookie deal, who cares? I mean, everybody else is basically on a one-year deal anyway. And the roster turnover from last year to this year, the Texans are the sixth have the sixth highest turnover rate in the entire league at about 49, almost 50%. And the roster is going to continue to churn. You make an argument that last year was year one of the rebuild, so to speak, just in terms of, you know, what they did in the draft and maybe uh, some free agent acquisitions. Uh, this is really the first year, obviously, with the head coach. You're going to see what you got and then kind of go from there. So I would expect more roster churn. But, hey, I mean – you got the picks, you got the capital, use them. And I'd rather use it on a guy that has NFL experience already, just using Josh Jones as an example, at 
one of your most desperate positions of need on the offensive line, it's a no-brainer. And Jones didn't sound like that he was in the running for a starting job in Arizona, if I you know, recall reading what I did correctly. It was oh, kind yeah. of it was kind of he was on the outside looking in, and that organization this year is quite similar to the Texans, knowingly and very public about them going nowhere. <laughs> It's going to be interesting to see how they play that Kyler Murray news, by the way. It's like, you know, you hear the report today. He's playing. Yeah, just give the fans that little shred of hope. Get out of here. He's not playing this year, coming off of that knee injury and the amount of money they have invested in. I, mean, I, I, I think you saw the writing on the I, wall there. I, I'm more worried. I mean, I, I'm saying all this about the late round picks. I get more worried about the early round picks. I get wor- more worried if Kenyon Green is a total bust. I get more worried if single uh, is if Stingley's a total bust. The, you know, I don't think he will be, but those two guys – they had injury history coming in, and the injury history has bit them so far with both of those guys. So th- th- those are, are way bigger concerns. Yeah. But the, the better GMs, it, they tend to hit occasionally on those later on. And he's going he's to have to hit on these later. And maybe Hutchinson is the guy. You know, we'll see. Yeah, maybe Hutchinson's the guy. I mean, Toa Toa, you know, later round pick, he could be a guy. Tegan Quatoriano, TBD, but he could be a guy. I really like him. He just needs to stay healthy, man. And that's that's the big caveat for, for everybody, really. But it'd be interesting to see, you know, look at the Diana, Diana Rossini report about Davis Mills uh, earlier, where teams have inquired about uh, interest in trading for him. You know, he was a third round pick in 2021. Him and Nico Collins are the only two remaining picks that uh, are on this team from that draft. If you could recoup a fourth or a fifth round pick for Davis Mills at this point in time, is that something that Nick Casario sneezes at? You know, does he jump on it? Uh, I, I don't know. It only behooves the Texans to, I think, hang on to that guy because the last thing you want is the reality to slap you in the face and C.J. Stroud gets hurt. Next thing you know, you're trotting out a 35, 36-year-old Case Keenum to be your starting quarterback with E.J. Perry as your backup. So I think the Texans are probably going to hold on to Davis Mills a little while longer because ultimately in the quarterback market, the price only goes up if the dude's healthy. Yeah, no, that's that's more of a deadline deal. And, and, you know, you see how things are going at at that point. Sean, who did Jalen Petrie tell you he wanted to give a shout out to oh well he, he did give a really good shout out to jonathan joseph i was anticipating and i was i was kind of trying to get him to say a player you know and i, I think my question was is people laud you for being a uh, like just fantastic guy in the film room you're just at a, operating at a different level and i said well who in that room challenges you and he immediately said jonathan joseph you know i said well why i mean what he just breaks the game down differently. Seth Payne was actually talking about it earlier this morning and said, you know, everything that Petrie said about Joseph is true. And Seth obviously knows firsthand, but the problem with Joseph was, is that he'd helped everybody else out as well on other teams. He just didn't know how to like keep it to himself and just help us out. He'd helped other corners out as well. I was just, I was, I was impressed by that. And I, I think, uh, you know, Petrie went on to say that he would not be shocked at all. I don't think any of us would either to see Jonathan Joseph on the sideline near you at some point much sooner than later. Um, did you talk to him about that at all? Did you did he say anything about uh, staying with the Texans during the season or that potential down the road or anything? If he was made available, it was during the time where I was at the podium waiting on players and coaches, you know, the last few practices of training yeah. camp. And so I didn't get a chance to catch up with him. And to my knowledge, I haven't seen anything where anybody's asked him. And the only question that I would ask him at this point in time is, well, how was it? Did you get bit by the bug? And if he says yes or something even close to that, that's a pretty darn encouraging thing to hear from one of the most important non-paid members of this coaching staff and Jonathan Joseph, this training camp. Because This is is one of those things, Sean, also where – if I'm the Texans, if I'm D'Amico, I go to Cal and say, you know what? Make Jonathan Joseph an offer. He can't refuse to come in and, and, and coach our staff because Defensive he's, assistant. Just, he's just too valuable. This is You could pay coaches whatever you want to. And, and, and with his knowledge and the respect that he has among – it was funny because I heard him tell you that Damian Pierce paid for the Texans a long time ago. Boy, oh, boy, Sean, I, I must be 90 years old because uh, it was like four years ago. I, I feel like I took a shower – and, and it's four, four years later. 
Yeah, yeah. I heard. I remember. Uh, I had to go back and actually listen to that. I'm like, dang, you know, I'm, I'm right there. I'm 40. It wasn't that long ago. My gosh. <laughs> uh, Four years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back in the day. But, you know, I, I thought about the same thing. But I, I do remember Jonathan Joseph coming to a practice last year. And I know he's got like at least one younger kid. Maybe he's got, you know, two or multiple. I don't, I don't know. I just, I remember little, a little kid being around and I think he was coaching, doing some work at the school. Look, Hey, you know, guys put in crazy hours for a long time. Once you leave that NFL life, as much as you want to get back into it, you don't miss the time away from your family. And so maybe he's just not ready to give that up at this point in time. Maybe he just wanted to kind of wet his beak, see if uh, it was worth uh, thinking about for the future. And if that's the case, then awesome. Jonathan Joseph, regardless of what Jalen Petrie or Damian Pierce said, <laughs> you know, he's still young. And uh, hey, look, for that matter, so are we for the most part, right? Uh, he'll have an opportunity if he wants to, to to join up with the staff. In particular, we hope it's this one with D'Amico at some point in time. Yeah, you say, oh, yeah, pay him some money, I guess. And maybe that's a stupid comment by me because Jonathan Joseph, uh, he, if I recall, he made a few dollars when he was in the NFL. He's probably doing pretty by the well. The Texans. Texans gave him the best contract I think he ever had in his NFL career, and rightfully so, uh, up until – heck, I – up until this past offseason, it was probably the most significant offseason signing in franchise history, Daniel Manning and Jonathan Joseph. I don't think it's even close. Yeah, I just looked it up. He made $85 million in his career, so he't fine. He didn't, he, he didn't make me think from Cal McNair anymore. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you, Sean, um, about one Michael Brantley, because he's back. Did you throw a party, Michael Brantley party? Two days in a row, too, and the second – only better than the first two out RBIs in the third inning. How about that? I mean, shocker. Like, if he's healthy, I don't think there was any question that the guy was going to, you know, produce for you. I, I don't think there would have been as much emphasis on a guy that they doubted could still hit at this level. So I'm not surprised. I'm just glad. You know, Dusty Baker was asked uh, in a roundabout way, does he feel like his team, this lineup is whole again? And Dusty was like, well, it's never whole unless everybody's clicking, you know, on the same cylinder at the same time, right? But I tell you what, with the way the bats have, you know, turned on and you infuse Brantley into the equation, you have to feel fantastic about it. I get it. Like, the major questions are, well, how do you keep Yiner Diaz's bat in there routinely? How do you keep him fresh? Hell, he just played in the longest stretch of baseball games for this team that he had all season long. I think he played in like 16 straight games. Longest stretch he'd gone before that is like two stretches of 13, and then they usually break him up like three, three on and a day off, two on, a day off. There's been no rhyme or reason early. If, he, um, if he's playing, Sean, if, if Yiner Diaz is in the lineup, mm -hmm. At catcher. Okay, let me stress, at catcher where he should well, be playing. Don't be greedy he, now. Just get his it, bat in the lineup. No, no, no. If he's in the – what I'm saying, though, is if he's in the lineup at catcher, you look at this lineup that they can trot out there. I'm going to – I'm just going to make the statement, the bold statement, this is the best lineup in Astros history. Because, first of all, the Astros have never had a catcher as they, they can hit like Yonder Diaz. But let's go through this lineup for a second. Ooh. Jose Altuve, former MVP. Alex Bregman former top three MVP guy, Jordan Alvarez, top three, top two MVP guy, uh, Kyle Tucker. I, I don't think I need to tell you anybody about Kyle Tucker, Jose Abreu, former MVP. I know he's not the same Jose Abreu, but he's starting to look a little bit, you know, maybe post-injury. You got a little bit more of that. Chaz McCormick. Oh my God. He's got around a, a, a 900 OPS and he's turned into an all-star level player and it, you know, just an incredible hitter. And then you know, back of your lineup are guys like Jeremy Pena, who all of a sudden looks like, you know, World Series MVP Jeremy Pena, ALCS MVP Jeremy Pena. He looks fantastic. I haven't even mentioned Yonder Diaz yet. I haven't even mentioned Yonder Diaz yet. This lineup from beginning to end right now, if you put out Yonder Diaz at catcher and Michael Brantley out there, who's, you know, we know what Michael Brantley is. 300 hitter throughout his career, one of the better hitters in baseball. It's the best lineup in Astros history. I don't know, man. Uh, I have to go back and look. The, and the reason why I say it is maybe you know off the top of your head, the thing the thing that kills it for me, because you, you tried to excuse it away, is Abreu's bat. 
right? Okay, yeah, maybe getting closer, but hey, it ain't what you thought you were buying in the office. Is Abreu's bat, though? Here's the thing with Abreu's bat. Is it better than you, the catchers that you've had over the years, Robinson, Chirinos, or I'm trying Abreu, to remember. Abreu huh? to a catcher? Like, let's call apples to apples. Is Abreu's bat this year better than batting title Yuli two years ago? No. No, but you can't compare it to that because I'm saying – Yonder Diaz, we we got nothing to compare. We we have no that's my point. We have no catcher to compare to Yonder Diaz. Yeah, but he's not gonna be the everyday catcher. No, but I'm saying you missed my entire intro. With Yonder Diaz in a catcher, with Yonder Diaz in a catcher, with Yonder Diaz in a catcher, Dusty Baker, Sean Dusty Baker, Bajati. I'll let you have it. Go ahead. Yonder Diaz at catcher. This is the best lineup, period. I mean, it's without question. They haven't had a good hitting catcher since when? I mean, I don't know. Like, no, never. <laughs> uh, well, they had uh, uh, who was the backup that that uh, Use, was he a backup? Usabio, he was pretty good hitter. Well, I mean, he started for a little bit. Mitch, yeah, Mitch Valeski for a season, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's the list right there. Yeah, um, and if you want to like uh, parse up Brad Osmus's first two months of like every year of his Astros career when he was hitting like four sixteen before hitting like 093 the next three months. Oh, BG, I should say B, well, BGO well. when he was B, BGO. I'm sorry. My apologies to Craig BGO. Yeah. That, that's, that's probably your best hitting. Well, I figured you didn't want to go back 30 years. Uh, so I was going to just let that one pass. But. but, but my point is the BGO teams, when he was the catcher, were not very good. That, those they're offensively. They weren't very good around him. I mean, so let's, let's put it in a vacuum. Okay. So Heiner Diaz is your catcher every single day. Um, and Jose Abreu's bat is still what it is, largely inconsistent and old. Um, but in a, hold on, in the I'm asking you a question. Hold on, it's in, in, a a vacuum, in a vacuum. You're going to put your best lineup you just mentioned with those two guys out there. You're going to put that up against one of the most historically prolific Astros offenses that we'd seen during this six-year stretch of dominance in the American League. 2017 and 2019's offenses like well for the whole season but sean people don't get it right now i'm talking about right now i'm not talking about three or the last three or four months i'm not talking when jordan wasn't playing and altuve wasn't playing i'm saying today right now with yonder diaz and michael brantley remember the astros with all the crap that's happened this year they're number five number five and run scored in baseball. They're number five. Yeah, with all yeah, of that other junk. Sixth, I think they're sixth in run differential. They've got <laughs> they, if Yonner's in the lineup, they have six starters. Six starters with a eight hundred OPS or above. I mean, like people are just I, I you go on Twitter and you know, Twitter is the, the trash can of uh you know <laughs> of, oh, of, you of, of comments, but but you go on Twitter and every time the Astros have an outing where they score one run or two runs. Everybody is like griping about the offense and the hitters. That look, we, you know, if you listen to us, you you know it. If you watch the games, you know it. it this in this team's issues have never. It's not the offense. It's it's starting pitching. Well, there you starting, go. Right. Starting pitching, starting pitching. But this and offense. Now like that you he, mentioned that, we got to start respecting that. the fact that that Jose Altuve is looks like like. 2017 Jose Altuve right now. Of course, 100%. Now that you mentioned and you kind of furthered, you know, the discussion and the the overall point of why we are not as confident in this year's team as we've been in years past, it is the starting pitching. I'll ask you this question. Your perfect lineup that you just broke down, take that every single day into the postseason. Do you – and Keep the starting pitches at pitching as is. Multiple question marks, you know, uh, seemingly every night. How confident are you in this ball club to contend for a World Series this year with your greatest offensive lineup that you just put out there? Well, the issue is the nights that everybody criticizes the Astros for not hitting, it's typically because they run into, into, into great pitching and great pitching in the playoffs beat you and unfortunately this it has to be unfortunately we'll never see this lineup in the postseason because Yonner's going to be rotting on the bench in the postseason and i just i just don't think so i really don't that's where do you where do you do you think that that dusty 
would play Yonder Diaz over Michael because the only place that Yonder could play, he he's he ain't playing him at first base. He has no confidence in him defensively in a postseason game to play Yonder at first base. The only place he's going to play in a postseason, he's not playing for Maldi. We oh, know no, that. He played Trey Mancini at first base last year, and he made the play of the series. <laughs> Saved well, Trey Mancini was a was a a longtime first baseman and a natural first baseman. That's so, fine, but he'd also spent the entire season before you acquired him in left field, and you refused to play him in left field for like a month and a half, <laughs> you know, while he was already on the team. I'm just saying, I'm saying, I don't think Yiner Diaz has flubbed up once at first base. No, no, he's he's but, he's had some he's had some flubs over there. Yeah, definitely had some. Has flubs. he made an error? Has he made an error? Um, he, well, he's had yeah that those two he's had those two balls to get by him on pickoff throws, and and I don't think. Either one of those were necessarily the pitcher. And but the other thing is it, the error doesn't matter let's, to me. Let's just not what, get what, nitpicky. All what, I'm saying is that what, there's what an matters to me to is the guy out there. What matters to me is an error is it's you know, there there are plays that you 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 can make that just make guys look better. And you know, guys are not gonna throw balls right into your glove every time. You you're gonna have to make those scoop plays, you're gonna have to make Fair. those plays. And and that's the issue with him. Not that Abreu's been great at it, but Abreu has played you know, a, a big, long career at first base. And that, that's his, that's his. Sure. You got a hell of a lot used to seeing a gold glove first baseman over there uh, for, for oh, yeah. years. Right, I mean, so. I'm, I'm, I'm the person that said, you know, everybody just, when I said, you know, they shouldn't have got rid of Yuli and it was a waste of, I, I had a lot of people come out. Oh, Yuli was washed up. Yuli was this, look, Yuli was never washed up over at, at first base defensively. And with what Abreu has given you this year offensively and, what Yuli's given offensively to me, this, this was, this wasn't a quite, and you know, a lot of people out there dump on dusty because he he's into defense more than offense on, on, on most guys where I was all, all aboard with the defense instead of offense was what Yuli Gurriel brought you at first base. And you had to bring somebody that was for sure, like not going to fall off a cliff offensively and then just be not good for you defensively. And Abreu, unfortunately, f- fell off that clip, and so it looks like a terrible move. Unpredictable uh, to that proportion. You know, li- nobody forecasted, you know, literally the, the same kind of fall off that we experienced with Yuli Gurriel last year. And even then, it wasn't that bad. Like, Abreu was worse. <laughs> but at least when you – know? the great thing about Yuli is even if he falls off, you figure he's not going to fall off defensively. I mean, he had – he had some str- he had a, some struggles at times defensively, but when he, when Yuli had struggles, it was like, oh my God, Yuli always makes that. You you got so used to him making. I mean, great yeah, play. struggles like so he doesn't make like one play every right. blue moon. So I mean, yeah. I wouldn't even count that as a struggle. Like it's baseball stuff happens, but um, ultimately, this team they've got the opportunity in this stretch upcoming, the three with the Yankees, it starts Friday, the three with the Rangers, you know, thereafter, you still got another series with the Mariners later on in the season. Like how big does that series look now in comparison to what we thought it was going to look like three weeks ago, even. Um, and then some really e- easy series. This is where having the third easiest remaining schedule in all of major league baseball, I guess is factored in is that you've got the multiple series with the A's and the Royals upcoming as well. I'm not worried about that. To me, you know, metal meets the road here against the Yankees and the Rangers in this stretch because you are as close as you'd been in a month to playing good baseball and having the opportunity to step on the throat and seize control of the AL West. Now you would just be doing it against a different team in the Mariners who lead you by a game versus the Rangers who had led you, you know, wired to this point. From start to this point is what I'm seeing is what I meant to say. Um, they're playing some of their best baseball um, that they had offensively. Offensively, but I'm going to say overall too because you know Framber Valdez has shown signs like recording 31 straight outs over three starts. Um, it looks like maybe he's starting to figure some stuff out. You know JP France coming off of that horrible two and a thirds outing in which he just got blasted. 11 hits, 10 runs. He puts together a quality outing his next time out. Christian Javier, yeah, he's still struggling, you know, with some walks and pitch count to get you to five. 
He hasn't gotten you to six in I don't know how long, but it's still much more encouraging these last two outings by him than what we'd been used to seeing the month and a half prior. Well, J.P. France, France, let me just say, J.P. France had one bad outing. Uh, Fromber, I just I, mentioned I, that, yeah, but yeah, the, it's, yeah, but that's like, not showing. Like you said, showing signs that they're going to get together. J.P. France never had a showing showed much, much sign that it was falling apart. You know, well, I, I agree. Look, he I didn't agree. look like that at any point in time this season. Okay, is what I meant to say. And obviously, we all know he just ended a string of like uh, nine nine out of ten quality starts with that horrible outing of the day. But Justin Verlander, you know, put together another really good performance, looked a little bit closer to the Mets version of the Justin Verlander the last couple of months yeah. than the one the Astros got. So for yeah, those reasons, I'm encouraged. Yeah, Verlander, you're right. Uh, Fromber, hopefully, like I want to see, I want to see him string together a couple more, but it's a start for for Fromber. Christian Javier, I guess I'm I'm not as much buying into, but yeah, you make some points with the, with at least two of the guys. Uh, let me ask you, Sean, and, and want to get away from the Astros for for our last few seconds here, and I'm going to get your thoughts on this. What do you think of this photo right here? Fire! It was awesome, man. Um, I, I love I love the Cougs' uh, gall to go and do this. You know, they're watching the Texans, uh, you know, tiptoe around this crap with the Titans. They're going to allow the Titans to punk them when they go up there and face them um, this season. They're going to be wearing their Oiler throwbacks. The Cougars said, you know what? To heck with all this mess. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it better than the Texans probably could have thought about doing it. And the field has the blue Houston. You know, it's it's going to be an amazing opening weekend for college football in Houston. Um, everybody who's anybody in football, I think, in town that's not tied up doing other football things is going to be at TDECU on Saturday watching this, being a part of it. It's going to be an incredible environment for the first ever Big 12 game for Houston Cougar football. Yeah, Sean was talking about, if you're listening to us on the podcast, he was talking about that. He was talking about this. <laughs> My God, I love it. I love it. And that, that we're talking about the Cougars uniform looking exactly with, with the colors and everything like the old Oilers, the colors, similar scheme, similar, not obviously they don't have the Derek on the helmet, but the rest of it was, was it's really good. Still, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I've seen, man, to come to fruition. You know, I think the Rockets came out with like that Oiler blue uh, within recent years. Maybe they wore it like twice. Uh, the Astros need to do something, man. Just like double rods to Bud Adams. It doesn't need to make sense. It just, it really, it's not just to Bud Adams. It's to the entire state of Tennessee um, that, hey, you're, you're blue, you're Columbia blue, that you think you're stealing solely from the Oilers. It's actually a Houston thing, not just an Oiler thing. And we're going to own it. And we're going to own it better than you ever could dream of. So I think the Astros, the Rockets, the Cougars, the Texans, you need to get on board, figure it out, you know, hurry up, get through with all your crossing T's, dotting I's with the NFL and all that garbage, and and make it happen. Get the Columbia blue, the red, the white going on one of these unis in 2024. Let's see it. The Astros stick with the orange, but, man, I don't know how many times I got to say it. You got to bring out the old rainbow jerseys more often you've got to bring out the tequila sunrise the classics that's the most fun thing that the astros have ever done it's iconic it is an iconic uniform everybody knows who it is yeah. the team immediately and so we don't need you having columbia blue you if you want to change the uniform up a little bit and, and we've seen the tequila sunrise but you know, not as much this year, and it seems like the last couple of years, but that 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 is the one that needs to come out more often. I mean, I, I'm sorry, the Space City's fine. I like the Space City no, jersey. It's terrible. But the but <laughs> the terrible. But yeah, that's the that's the key. That's the big one. I need to see them. They're gonna change it up. They always, you know, these uh the marketing teams with these organizations, Texans and Astros specifically. I don't know too much about the Rockets. I think they try way too hard. Of course. 
maybe I was in the minority, but I really like the San Diego Rocket throwback Unis last year. Uh, I get the comparison. Maybe it was a little too much Seattle, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I thought it was cool. The marketing teams, I think, for the most part, design teams for these unis, pretty spot on, man. And uh, Texans are getting after it. They're doing some things. I know it's going to be pretty cool in 2024. I think it's March when they're going to unveil their plans for all the uniforms, the four different uniforms they're going to have. So it'll be cool. I'm looking forward to it. I said it. Last week, or last show, I'm going to say it one more time, just for everybody that, you know, loves their Houston sports history. If you love your Houston sports history, we have done so many interviews talking about Houston sports history with ex-players, ex-broadcasters, legends, J.R. Richard. I mean, there's a long list. Jimmy Wynn, whatever. Go into the archives. The best thing to do is just go on YouTube and go to the Houston sports history playlist. And there's almost 200 videos there about Houston sports, you know, with, uh, you know, clips and interviews with Houston sports history in it. Um, you know, it just, uh, it's, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of for the show that we really highlighted that and, you know, kept those people alive and, and they're all connected. I mean, you hear those names, Sean, when you listen to the broadcast, they talk about Jimmy Wynn and J.R. Richard and, uh, you know, Alan Ashby or, you know, all, all these guys that used to play, Dan, Dan Pastorini, if you, you talk about the Houston Oilers, yeah. and of course, Alvin Bethay and Robert Brazil that were in the Hall of Fame. We talked to them, talked to Brazil more than one time. So go check that. Uh, you know, there's an incredible interview that I love. It's one of my favorites with Mickey Herskowitz about the entire, you know, Astros history and Rockets history. And he was there for the beginning of all that stuff. So that is definitely worth a listen. Um I'm not. I'm not sure when our next show is. It we'll have to see about um, where uh, me and Sean are on Monday with Labor Day. But uh, definitely, we're going to talk to you at some time. Uh, hopefully, on Monday or Tuesday of next week. And then uh, we're not that long. We're not that long before we're doing a live Texans post game for real, like the real it's game. Game week next week, man. It's going to be on. It's going to be on. It's game week. It's uh, it's already here. Already here. All right, let's do it. We'll talk to you again. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.